This is the Abolish MKE podcast, and for this episode, I'll be reading Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, U.S. Prisoners Collectively Resisting Against Systems of Death by Colleen Hackett and Ben Turk. This essay is a part of the recommended study materials for a panel that Ben Turk will be hosting on August 31st. Introduction. Prisoner resistance in the U.S. has a long and rich history though it is often ignored, overlooked, or unknown to outsiders. In the 1960s and 70s, the visibility of prisoner resistance among politically aware and ambitious revolutionaries peaked. George Jackson, the Black Panther Party, the Attica Brothers, and many other formations battled the terrorizing conditions of imprisonment with direct actions such as uprisings, escape attempts, and even wars of attrition against correctional staff. They were often met with powerful outside support, not only from revolutionary cells like the Black Liberation Army, Weather Underground, and the George Jackson Brigade, but also liberal and left organizations like Marxist political parties, labor unions, Muslim religious sects, progressive law firms, anti-carceral feminists, and even mainstream organizations such as the NAACP and the ACLU. At that time, prisoner resistance was also resonating with non-affiliated publics who were generally outraged with neglectful, abusive, and imperialist governmental bodies and found itself mirrored and reinforced by waves of urban unrest. The government responded to spontaneous riots and social movements with new technologies of urban control and heightened prosecution. Law enforcement and counterintelligence programs that attempted to infiltrate, sabotage, and contain revolutionary political movements also expanded to target working class and lower income people in urban areas. The goals of disrupting prisoner organizing and policing uh, ungovernable populations mutually reinforced each other. Expanding control technologies enabled more incarceration, while more incarceration justified expanding control and technologies. The prison system shifted with a model of rehabilitative managerialism in the big house prisons to uh, incapacitation and warehousing to facilities separated into blocks, units, and pods with a greater reliance on isolation and deprivation like solitary confinement. During and after this era of prison expansion, prisoners did not cease defending themselves against state violence. Rather, their resistance became more diffuse and unstable, and not as overly political. The pressures of entombment and swelling populations caused prisoners to turn against each other more often, producing race riots and bloody feuds between rival sects. As the state continued its dismantling of politically revolutionary groups in various communities, prisoners' connections with outside movements also declined and grew strained. The call for liberation and solidarity continued, but it was mostly drowned out by an overwhelming deluge of rhetoric encouraging punishment and the dehumanization of anyone criminalized or incarcerated. The ideology of social death and disposability grew to permeate the American social landscape. In the last decade, this mutually reinforcing cycle appears to have reached an upper limit. The mass incarceration spike is leveling off. Public sympathy with criminalized people is slowly but steadily increasing, and incarcerated populations are gaining steam in their coordination and organizing efforts. Rebels have adapted technology to liberatory purposes. Contraband cell phones, social media communication, and podcasts have all been used to overcome the isolation of prison and communicate across walls and borders.
Since 2010, the prison system has been beset with a return of politically conscious and coordinated protest movements, as well as a resurgence of spontaneous uprisings and rebellions. Perilous Chronicle, a website that attempts to track every reported incident of unrest in U.S. prisons since the historic Georgia prison strike in December of 2010, counts more than 270 distinct events, including two nationally coordinated prisoner protests in 2016 and 2018, and 101 uprisings. Editors of Perilous note, many disturbances within prisons go unreported in the media. Gaps in transparency make it hard to comprehensively analyze the scope of prisoner resistance activity. Resistance by prisoners cannot be accurately quantified due to the fog of accountable and opaque prison bureaucracies, but Perilous and other sources are cataloging the regularity of prison rebellions. The acknowledgement of imprisoned protests and analytics is becoming more prevalent in the academy as well. Though the shadow carceral state attempts to maintain an impenetrable barrier between prisons and the public. Further dismantle that divide, we will bring in a growing body of imprisoned intellectualism to demonstrate how contemporary prisoners are conceptualizing carceral neo-slavery and to explore how the modern prisoner resistance mo movement is self-defense response to the curious institution of living death within U.S. prisons. In fact, we find that it is difficult to dismantle prison walls on a broad scale. Prisoners are acutely effective at combating the social alienation that the carceral state seeks to impose. We feel it is imperative to state that both authors are white, free-world abolitionists producing an ana analytic that hinges on the voices and experiences of those imprisoned. We have gained consent from the prisoners featured in this article to highlight their words and thoughts and in many cases have done so with much back-and-forth correspondence. We have both been involved with direct prisoner support and anti-prison social movements for decades, attempting to carefully fulfill the desires of imprisoned people to have their opinions carried beyond the prison gates while mitigating the tokenization and career opportunism that may occur when free world people attempt to represent the incarcerated. Though the first author is formally incarcerated, her whiteness and current status as professor greatly affects the lens with which she now analyzes car the carceral state in ways that are in many ways similar to, but also deeply from, the racialized analyses presented in this paper. The History and Continuity of Entombment The ghosts of settler colonialism, chattel slavery, and mass elimination continue to animate institutional life in the United States. Carceral hauntings of the prisons and jails stem from a long legacy of state-sponsored ritualized racial violence, though its shape and definition has shifted depending upon the socio-legal socio particularities of the era in question. The aim of settler colonialism on Turtle Island in its terroristic conquest of land, resources, labor, and bodies was, and is, to impose a social order that benefits white settlers while containing the threat of racialized others. Through genocidal acts, geographic displacement, and or incarceration, to name but a few eliminatory tactics. 
And though the institutionalized devaluation of black and indigenous life has changed in form and scope over the last 400 years in the United States, the white supremacist ordering that is inherent to the nation's origins is perhaps the most salient in the penal landscape. Persisting long after the abolition of slavery, the ending of formal segregation, and the granting of treaty rights to tribal groups, the prisons remain to visually and ideologically reproduce racialized subhumanity. The prison and other punitive apparatuses have been hallmarks in the aim of disappearing and containing racialized others for the benefit of for the benefit and so-called safety of a white settler society. And understanding this persistent backdrop is integral to any study of contemporary carcerality. In the project of erasure, the carceral state determines who is disposable and who is not, flexing a form of necropower, the state's ability to inscribe physical and symbolic death on racialized populations. Carceral necropower is infused with the logic that certain lives marked as dangerous or criminal are without value and, therefore, justifies the isolation, material deprivation, and the social and sometimes physical death of prisoners. Though slavery and legalized racial segregation have formally ended, many of those who are currently contained in the U.S. prison system have a deep understanding of the continuity in the state's power to impose this living death, the plantation, to the new American plantation of the prison. George Jackson, one of the most notable revolutionaries in the prisoner resistance movement of the 1960s and 70s, produced rich analysis on the enduring legacies of enslavement, colonization, capitalism, and the political necessity of organizing against destructive powers. In connecting chattel slavery to his experience under the neo-slavery of the modern penal regime, he writes, I recall the very first kidnap. I lived through the passage, died on the passage, lain in the unmarked, shallow graves of the millions who fertilized the American soil with their corpses cotton and corn grown out of my chest. My mind ranges back and forth through the uncounted generations, and I feel all that they ever felt but double. I can't help it. There are too many things to remind me of the 23 and a half hours that I'm in this cell. Not 10 minutes pass without a reminder. Jackson's poetic and visceral account explains how the ghosts of anti-black terrorism haunt the architecture of solitary confinement, while his knowledge of shadow histories and racial capitalism haunt his own entombed existence. As Ruth Wilson Gilmore argues in her seminal text, Golden Gulag, racism specifically is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. Settler colonial investments on, in a racial order that prioritize wealth and power accumulation for whites is necessarily predicated on the subjugation of racialized populations and, in particular, necessitates black and indigenous despair. Racialized dispossessions are intimately linked with racial capitalist modernity, assigning social worth to those who have market value, thereby rendering surplus populations as disposable. The neoliberal political and social order that arose in the post-World War II economy and 
epistemological structure of disavowal renders past racial, gendered, and sexual violences as invisible, while imposing an ideology that certain segments of the population are personally responsible for their poverty and or criminality. Though a white heteropatriarchal social structure actively disavows, dispossesses, and immobilizes these populations, the abuser mentality of these systems of power blames racialized and gendered others for their inability or their lack of desire to acquiesce to oppressive structures. This disavowal process and the categorical application of social waste to those considered criminal results in a process of social death, defined by Patterson as the practice in which a person or group of people is excluded, dominated, or humiliated to the point of becoming dead to the rest of society. Although such people are physically alive, their lives no longer bear a social meaning. They no longer count as lives that matter. Importantly, Patterson's development of this concept comes from an in-depth analysis on chattel slavery, connecting foundational logic of anti-blackness in the U.S. to the social death process, thereby affirming acclaimed Afro-pessimist Frank Wilderson's conclusion that blackness as a paradigmatic position rather than as an ensemble of identities, cultural practices, or anthropological accoutrements, cannot be disimbricated from slavery. The intent of this practice, either during chattel slavery or under the modern carceral practices, is to impose a violent deprivation upon a target population and to serve natal, familial, and social relationships in order to produce docility and servitude though the prison system considers this process corrective. Eliminating people, particularly those from racialized communities, violently unhinging them from their social networks and collectively entombing their bodies in cages undermines the social, ethical, and political subjectivity of prisoners. But it is necessarily important to mention what social death by incarceration does for whiteness. As imprisoned critical theorist Ivan Kilgore held captive in California, points out, this process preserves the rights and freedoms of a settler society. At its core, modern prison slavery is also predicated on a distinctly white supremacist logic of extermination. The 13th Amendment, according to this argument, is a legal technology that has anchored U.S. geopolitical power in a foundation of black genocide. This mass of white supremacist violence is not confined only to the physical site of the prison slash jail itself, but also on the basis, but also a basis for the white settler's entire conception of himself as free, as the proper subject of rights, as the allegedly peaceful guardian of a democratic social order. It is the removal of criminalized populations from white civil spaces that enables the U.S. settler to think they are free. Social death is a destructive force for those subjected to carcerality, yet it is simultaneously intertwined with the construction of white freedom and citizenship. Both aspects of social death are, therefore, the protection of life that is predicated on the dispersal of death eliminating the dangerous racialized threat in order to provide the illusion of safety for a non-criminal white settler society. Yet carceral necropower and social death cannot fully succeed at the project of erasing and disavowing despite its widespread harm upon marginalized communities. 
as Dennis Childs documents in his book, Slaves of the State, neo-slave narratives are ubiquitous if intentionally sought after, despite the state's attempt at submerging the apparitional voices of the incarcerated. Childs finds imprisoned black intellectualism and resistance in songs, testimonies to the U.S. Department of Justice, archival materials specifically related to Louisiana State Prison, prison museums and penal tourism, and autobiographies. Similarly, in her book, on mass elimination in Los Angeles, Hernandez historicizes and brings forth a rich rebel archive of voices, both incarcerated and free world, who are rejecting, resisting, and refusing erasure. Sadia Hartman's note on method from Wayward Lives Beautiful Experiments describes the need of historians to grapple with the power and authority of the archive and the limits it sets on. Who is endowed with the gravity and authority of historical actor? Her technique of close narration written from nowhere to recreate the voices and intimate levels of real people serves to recover the insurgent ground of those lives and exhume open rebellion from the case file. Our organizing work affords us the opportunity to correspond with imprisoned rebels during their protests. For them, the politics of refusal involves a a need to fight back against the state terrors by collectively asserting political agency without regard for official recognition. The struggle is about both social and physical life and death. Though we prioritize the success that prisoners have gained by effectively diminishing the impact that social death has had on their lives and relationships. In this paper, we will explore how incarcerated rebels are resisting and collectively asserting political agency by breaking the machinery of death, producing counter-hegemonic critiques, and making socio-intellectual connections with other movements. And that concludes part one, the introduction and the history and continuity of entombment, chapters of Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, U.S. Prisoners Collectively Resisting Against Systems of Death by Colleen Hackett and Venter. Abolish MKE, news and analysis from a bad place. We work to publish and promote anti-authoritarian and abolitionist interventions in the so-called state of Wisconsin. Please do not hesitate to contact us with any questions. Abolish MKE at protonmail.com.